This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope you had a great weekend uh, and, uh, you know, good football weekend. Um, anytime the Falcons win and Ole Miss wins, I'm happy, but uh, you know, I understand it. There was some happiness in your house over football as well, but... Today, we're excited to talk about urban governance with Professor Jay Craig. Um, Professor Craig, welcome to the show. Would you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in urban governance? Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Um, so uh, I'm a visiting professor um, at the University of Mississippi School of Law this semester. Uh, I'm teaching a course on civil and political rights and a course on real estate law. Uh, I uh, normally teach at uh, Nova Southeastern University, Shepherd Broad College of Law uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, I am originally from Mississippi. I grew up in uh, Hattiesburg and graduated from Hattiesburg High School. Uh, then I went on to uh, the University of Virginia. And I came back to Mississippi to uh, join Teach for America. So I taught kindergarten in the Mississippi Delta in Greenville at Darling Elementary School, uh, which is uh, um, now an alternative school, as I understand it. But my oldest class of students is 22 uh, this year. Uh, so it kind of shows my age. Uh, and it would be the dream if one of them, you know, showed up in law school here at, uh, here at Ole Miss. Um, I uh, then went on to Columbia University Law School. Uh, I was a law clerk to two federal judges, um, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Detroit. Um, and then I moved back to Mississippi and I clerked for Judge Carlton Reeves. Uh, on the U.S. District Court in Jackson. And um, then I worked in the Obama administration uh, as a policy advisor at HUD uh, for the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, uh, which gave me an opportunity to really engage with my passion around the Fair Housing Act. Uh, I practiced law in Florida for about seven years uh, before um, I started teaching last year. And uh, I'm really uh, overall very passionate around fair housing law, state and local government law, and racial law. Well, and it's so great to have you here. It's great to have you here at the university, too. We're really happy to have you this, uh, you know, teaching with us. Uh, what exactly, we're going to talk about urban governance. So what exactly is urban governance? Well, urban governance, um, uh, in a, a simple um, uh, way of describing it, is the process by which we uh, decide who governs cities. Um, uh, urban governance is... You know, is a series of mechanisms that we use for the leadership of cities along with the process by which uh, we govern cities. So um, uh, essentially, uh, cities have different forms of government. Um, and uh, this also applies to uh, county governments and um, all kinds of um, special districts that operate within states and how they manage themselves. Uh, there are, you know, cities that have a city manager along with uh, that's appointed by a city council and a city council elected by the uh, population. 
uh, cities sometimes have a mayor elected by the public and uh, members of a city council elected by the council. That's probably the most common or most familiar form of government. Um, uh, or they uh, are comprised of uh, county commissions uh, that are uh, elected. And you also have uh, special districts that are um, sometimes elected um, uh, as a matter of state law, but can be appointed by local officials as well. Right, and we'll talk more about those special districts later in, in, in uh, our, our podcast. But um, now, how is the governance of a city determined? You mentioned all the different ways that it could be governed. How, who, who makes that decision? Well, uh, cities are essentially uh, considered creatures of the states. So the state constitution provides um, uh, the legislature with the authority to uh, improve, uh, excuse me, to approve the incorporation or development of a city. Um, a group of people in a particular area uh, have the uh, authority to obtain a charter and apply for incorporation uh, by which they're recognized with the power to establish and run a government. Uh, so uh, the state constitution controls the terms by which cities are created. Uh, legislators also um, provide laws um, related to the creation or development of cities. They also have the power to restrict uh, the activities in which cities can engage, the kinds of laws that they can pass, uh, and to uh, limit the terms and provisions of a charter, which is similar to kind of a city's constitution. Um, and so um, at the same time, people have the right to decide to um, create incorporated towns of their own uh, with a state approval. And, and you know, and one thing I've always been curious about, you mentioned that, and it seems like I know, I grew up in Atlanta, and Atlanta would occasionally annex, you know, another uh, town almost, or another uh, chunk of land. How, I mean, how do cities do that? I mean, how do they annex other, other things to be part of that city? Well, um, uh, state law also determines the circumstances under which a city can uh, perform annexations. Uh, usually, uh, they um, uh, they would sort of make a proposal to uh, either a state or local government uh, for an annexation. Uh, in many jurisdictions, they uh, have to obtain approval of the local population through a, a vote or a referendum in order to uh, annex this um, uh, particular area. And a lot of cities tend to grow through annexation. Uh, there's also a problem described as municipal underbounding, whereby um, um, there's a, a really strong uh, racial dynamic. Uh, a, a, a majority, uh, a white city will sometimes decide to annex another majority white jurisdiction uh, neighboring it, but not decide to annex a majority black jurisdiction uh, to the extent it would either increase the black population in that of that larger city, uh, which could affect voter dynamics, um, uh, and to avoid providing various public services to that uh, to that neighboring majority uh, black jurisdiction. So uh, there are strategic ways in which cities can decide uh, on you know annexation uh, policies or measures that further racial inequality uh, or that limit racial diversity. And, uh, and that's really it's, it's interesting because that's a dynamic that you know you see cities engaging in. Um, one one thing that I've always been curious about I, I, is a city self-governed, or can a city be self-governed? You mentioned it's a creature of the state, but are there cities that have uh, home rule, for example? Uh, 
Yes, right. So there are uh, cities um, in various states that have home rule. Um, but even with home rule, there are still limitations that are set out by uh, a state constitution or by state law. And um, cities normally have the power to, to govern themselves, but within certain restrictions, similar to you know, Congress uh, having uh, limited powers under the constitution to pass certain laws or state governments having limited uh, rights under the constitution of their state to pass certain laws. So for example, um, you know, there has been um, sort of a trend of legislation around the country uh, that limits uh, the ability of cities to, to uh, pass laws that really kind of favor uh, greater uh, social equality or inclusion. Uh, uh, many states uh, prevent cities from establishing a local minimum wage, for example, uh, to the extent that city wants to require uh, employers to pay above a state minimum wage or the federal minimum wage. Um, some cities want to adopt uh, what's called inclusionary zoning, where uh, they require developers who are building uh, multifamily housing to uh, set aside a certain percentage of units, uh, usually uh, 10 to 30% at the most of, um, uh, of the units for lower income or moderate income families in order to increase income diversity and to provide for uh, additional affordable housing uh, for example, Tennessee has passed a law that limited uh, cities uh, in their ability to pass inclusionary zoning ordinance uh, after Nashville tried to pass an inclusionary zoning measure to deal with their affordable housing problem. So cities can govern themselves, but there are lots of different ways in which uh, state governments can restrict it. Yeah, I remember a kind of a curious law that was passed uh, a few years ago um, after New York decided to limit the size of soft drink it can be sold and it, you know, the, the, state of the state of Mississippi said well um, no city can pass a law restricting the size of soft drinks that can be sold you know kind of grinding the opposite and I think what New York was trying to do is they were worried about um, diabetes and obesity and, and so you know our state said no city can can make those limits uh, on those sales which you know uh, different than of course the affordable housing a little lesser issue but still an interesting a restriction by the state. Definitely. Uh, well, and I would say, you know, uh, about these kinds of laws that there are, you know, certainly at least two sides to the argument on the side of various state governments. There's an interest in creating uniformity in terms of access to business opportunities and um, a, a regulatory market that employers can understand that exists statewide. So uh, some employers may be hesitant to move to a state where, you know, in Jackson, you can charge one minimum you know, wage and in Hattiesburg, you have to charge a different one because they want more uniformity in um, their ability to you know, decide how much uh, compensation to pay workers. And on the side of various local governments, local governments often are having to foot the bill for uh, certain inequalities that may be allowed at a state level. So, for example, in the case of the soft drink sizes, the you know city or county department of health is dealing with people who come in to um, uh, public health clinics with problems related to diabetes, uh, diabetes or obesity. So, they want to pass legislation that you know will mitigate some of those um, financial responsibilities for themselves. And then, you know, as a matter of state law, they're not allowed to. 
So um, cities are trying to deal with problems where they have to bear the burden of the responsibility associated with the problem, uh, more so than the state government, but the state still has the right, the right to step in and restrict their ability to manage that issue. I am finding this so fantastic. Uh, Professor Jade Craig, we have not ever really had a show talking about this. We, we pride ourselves on this is the show about uh, your rights and uh, you. And this is fantastic because it, it applies to everybody in the state of Mississippi. So I just love reminding our listeners that our show is about you and your rights. And if you would like to be part of shaping your rights, maybe consider running for public office. If you need a suggestion on what that might look like, head over to the Mississippi Secretary of State's website and look at their candidates' uh, qualifying forms. I'll have a link to that site on this show's podcast description. Today, we're talking about urban governance with our guest, Professor Jade Craig from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Yes, we're so happy to have uh, Professor Craig here with us. And, and you know, now let's, let's talk a little bit about um, urban governance issues specific to Mississippi, Jackson's border crisis and House Bill 1020 have been in the news, not only locally, but nationally. Could you please talk about why those are important urban governance issues? Well, I did want to uh, make a point about uh, uh, Liz's reference to running for public office because there's some really, you know, remarkable um, um, statistics in Mississippi about that. Um, so the Voting Rights Act in 1965 really had a transformative effect on Mississippi state politics. And today, Mississippi has the highest number of Black elected officials of any state in the country, uh, which is a real achievement to be proud of across uh, across the state. Um, and um, um, my grandmother is actually from Fayette, Mississippi, uh, and, you know, lovingly remembered the election of Charles Evers uh, in the late 1960s when he became the first Black mayor of a biracial town in Mississippi. So uh, there's a great uh, tradition of, uh, of leadership from people of all racial backgrounds across the state, particularly at the local level. Uh, and I think that that, that the the number of black elected officials um, and cities that are uh, led um, uh, by um, by African Americans has had a real impact on both of these problems: the Jackson water crisis and um, the uh, House Bill 1020. So, uh, Jackson actually has a, a population that's uh, over 80 percent African American, one of the highest of any major um, U.S. city in the country. Um, and the um, local government is also majority uh, majority black, and it has created a great deal of tension between um, the uh, state legislature, you know, which now has a Republican supermajority uh, and predominantly white leadership, uh, versus the city of Jackson, the home of the state legislature and our state capital, uh, which is for, for um, you know decades had uh, black leadership and black elected officials. Um, the two are from different parties, um, uh, with you know, the Jackson city government being majority Democratic and the legislature majority Republican, in a state where the two political parties are extremely racially polarized, one of the strongest rates of polarization in the nation, uh, where you know uh, the vast majority of, uh, of white voters in Mississippi uh, vote Republican, the vast majority of black voters vote Democratic. 
and the two have not been able to get along despite the fact that there are local government issues in the city of Jackson that require a great deal of cooperation with the state government. Uh, Jackson's own water crisis you know, stems from the um, of several issues that affect local governments around the country. Uh, there's been a decline in tax revenue uh, in the city of Jackson as it has lost population uh, with people moving from the city into the surrounding suburbs. Uh, the suburbs around Jackson are like that for many major American cities uh, with you know, significant racial polarization with various cities that are you know, majority uh, white, uh, and uh, various cities that are uh, majority Black in different parts of uh, Hines County or Rankin County. Uh, and those, the and, and many of these jurisdictions, especially majority white towns, sort of um, taking away uh, resources that would have otherwise gone to the city of Jackson when um, the city was a much more uh, diverse and representative of that local population. So as um, those also include economic resources um, uh, like businesses that are you know, located outside of the city of Jackson that no longer provide a tax revenue to it. Uh, and without the uh, you know, requisite amount of revenue, it's very hard for the local government to provide uh, proper public services, including the maintenance of its water systems. Um, it also is dealing with the situation where as the population has fallen, the size of the infrastructure hasn't changed in order to um, to account for that. So, uh, for example, the city you know may be around 170,000, but they are managing a water infrastructure developed you know 40 or 50 years ago that accommodated 200 or over 200,000 people. Uh, so, uh, the the you know the city population has shrunk in size, but there's less revenue available to manage a system that's still just as extensive. Um, the system requires various upgrades and improvements technologically that become you know, um, cost prohibitive to make without the proper revenue. And as a result, you need state and federal intervention. Uh, the, the state government is a really appropriate source of revenue uh, because Jackson is the home of the state capital, and many of our uh, state office buildings um, are in Jackson, where state employees literally are commuting into the city of Jackson and using, you know, of course, resources like the water, and the state government isn't necessarily contributing under state law. Uh, the, the state government pays less or no property taxes to the city of Jackson despite the fact that they take up, you know, dozens of acres of land in office buildings, uh, many of that, much of that land isn't taxable. Uh, so the city doesn't have a way of recouping money to pay for the services that they're providing to the employees and legislators who come to town uh, for, you know, the session. So they're uh, set up in a very difficult situation. There also is a real need for federal intervention, but there's you know, been uh, until recently with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the CARES Act, a real decline in funding for uh, local infrastructure. Uh, but, you know, we do think that the federal government, um, you know, passing various laws to uh, strengthen infrastructure around the country could provide a benefit to the extent that the city of Jackson is getting more revenue to improve its water services. Well, I certainly hope so. And I, as I said, I grew up in Atlanta, and, when I, and I'm old enough that Atlanta and Jackson were similar-sized cities when I was growing up. And, and you see 
What's happened in Atlanta, because of all the racial diversity and, and general diversity, I mean, Atlanta has really grown and exploded. Um, and it's really, you know, kind of a, 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 a I think, a, a model of, of how people can work together and cooperate. Um, and it's a shame that Jackson hadn't done that. I mean, Jackson had that potential, and I still hope it does. Yeah, I don't know. And I think that's a perfect example because Atlanta's also a capital city that has a large uh, African American population, and where the local government uh, is, uh, you know, largely African American. Um, there's also the similar kinds of polarization between the the two political parties in Georgia, and uh, the and Atlanta's face, of course, many of the same challenges with you know suburbs um, of higher income people that have left the city. But it also is drawing more people back in. And I think, you know, we're in a, a moment where there are many people who are interested in living in cities and having more urban lifestyles um, and neighborhoods are starting to, you know, uh, generate and draw in more diversity, uh, particularly with young people and, um, you know, a rising group of, you know, uh, professionals of color who want to live in cities and they want to live together. And, um, you know, one of the challenges I think that Mississippi has overall is, you know, sort of the struggling economic base that can generate this kind of um, professional class and uh, sufficient number of economic opportunities to make living in the city, you know, worthwhile. Uh, and so we have to increase our, you know, uh, access to capital um, in the state and the uh, sources of employment so that people do come back to uh, to living in cities. Um, so let's let's switch out from the water uh, crisis to um, House Bill 1020, which has been controversial. I know um, our MacArthur Justice Clinic here at Johnson and that clinic have have uh, talked against that bill, and, and you wrote a, 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 an opinion letter in, in USA Today about it. Which is talk a little bit. Well, what does House Bill 20, uh, 1020 do, and why is it so controversial? Well, House Bill, House Bill 1020 all, actually has already been passed into law uh, as of the last legislative session. Uh, it's currently um, been challenged uh, in the courts by the NAACP and also by the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, uh, which has filed a lawsuit against um, uh, uh, the state uh, based on the passage of the bill. The, the law essentially creates what's called the Capital Complex Improvement District. Uh, and at first, it sounds like just a district around the state capitol uh, to manage the land encompassing the capital. And initially, this district started that way, but House Bill 1020 expands the district away from just the capitol grounds in downtown Jackson, but throughout various parts of the city. They created a map that, you know, is uh, very similar to a, a racially gerrymandered district map that is specifically designed to encompass all of the majority white neighborhoods in the city of Jackson, which mainly are near downtown and running into North Jackson. Um, and uh, so they, they created this district that encompasses the majority uh, uh, white neighborhoods. As I mentioned, the city is majority African-American, um, over 80% uh, uh, Black. So there's a rather small white minority in Jackson at this point. Um, but this district is designed to create a separate government for those white residents in Jackson who live in these majority white neighborhoods. They have uh, created a, uh, they expanded the powers of the Capitol Police Force, which 
you know, normally just patrol the area around the Capitol and perhaps certain state office buildings, but now they provide policing services for the uh, white neighborhoods in Jackson. Uh, they have um, they've taken away the power of the, uh, the uh, individuals um, in the city uh, to vote on uh, the judges in a state where all of our judiciary, except for the lowest level of judiciary and the traffic courts are elected. Uh, in this particular district, and only in this district in Mississippi, the judges are appointed by the Supreme Court, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Mississippi. The prosecutors in a state where all of our prosecutors are elected in this district, in just this district for Mississippi, the Attorney General has the power to appoint the prosecutors. Uh, and there's a racial dynamic uh, uh, to the extent that our state is almost 40% Black, but we have not elected a Black person to uh, statewide office since Reconstruction over 100 years ago, uh, which ended in 1877. And the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Mississippi is white and would presumably be white for the foreseeable future, given the way in which we uh, elect our state Supreme Court justices. Uh, the Attorney General is white and will be white for the foreseeable future, given the way in which we elect our Attorney General and the, and the polarization in the state. And so it's by design setting up a system where white judges appoint generally, you know, uh, uh, white uh, officials who serve as judges, uh, where a white attorney general generally appoints prosecutors who mostly will be white for like, presiding over this particular area in a city that is over 80 percent black. So shaping the state of Mississippi not only takes elected officials, but it also takes government employees. So in addition to the satisfaction of helping your neighbor, one of the perks of being an employee in Mississippi working for the state means you're probably covered by PERS, the Public Employees Retirement System of Mississippi. So if you want more information on PERS, I'm going to have a link to that in this show's podcast. Hey, there's also a MPB Money Talks podcast about PERS that I'll have a link to. We're talking today about urban governance with our guest, Professor Jade Craig, and we had been learning the facts about House Bill 1020. And Liz, we were talking, um, Jane was talking about the fact that uh, the DOJ and um, uh, others had brought uh, a case against uh, the validity of House Bill 1020. Can you talk a little bit about why the DOJ is involved and what, what is the basis of this lawsuit? Well, um, the, the DOJ has become involved because of the civil rights implications of uh, House Bill 1020. Um, the uh, there's uh, the concern that the the special district that's been created violates the principles uh, around uh, one person one vote. Um, it has changed the uh, the right to uh, a popular election of, of various officials provided uh, by by state law, uh, particularly of the judiciary uh, and of uh, prosecutors. Um, there also um, uh, have been, you know, sort of allegations of a rise in police misconduct, uh, um, uh, particularly against uh, African-Americans who travel in the so-called Capital Complex Improvement District. Uh, and this namely involves basically Black residents of the city of Jackson or of this area uh, who go into majority white neighborhoods 
uh, and who are uh, uh, generally uh, harassed by or mistreated, uh, in some cases, uh, by uh, police officers. Uh, and um, there is a lack of uh, accountability uh, to uh, local government officials uh, of the police force uh, and the difficulty in being able to uh, get redress for um, cases of police misconduct with this local government force that is controlled by you know, unelected um, uh, officials. And, and um, do, when, so what would be the timing of the, any result for these lawsuits and, and uh, you know, what would happen if, if uh, House Bill 1020 was found to be uh, unconstitutional? Well, uh, there also, of course, are, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the, um, the DOJ and the NAACP lawsuits, uh, claims about the unconstitutionality under the Equal Protection Clause, uh, which provides for a right to the equal protection of the laws. Um, for you know all individuals regardless of, of race, um, the timeline of the lawsuits really kind of depends on uh, uh, some internal decision making uh, about uh, the process of discovery, whether a court would terminate the case as summary judgment, uh, deciding that there are no issues of material fact that require a jury trial, uh, and whether a trial will go forward. Uh, you know, we could expect a result, you know, within 18 months to two years, uh, but litigation does take a long time and it's somewhat unpredictable. Um, uh, the, you know, there also, you know, may be a settlement, but uh, it's very difficult sometimes to resolve these kinds of constitutional issues with um, a settlement, uh, given the state's, um, you know, insistence that it has the authority to, you know, pass and implement this law. Uh, if the law is found unconstitutional, the... Um, the expanded capital complex improvement district would be uh, basically terminated and uh, the power would return back to the local elected officials and to the public under state law uh, the, that all of these areas in the city would still be governed by the city of Jackson uh, and Hines County prosecutors and cases um, in this district would go before Hines County uh, circuit judge um, the district also uh, uh, notably creates a separate court for the eva uh, evaluation of criminal uh, offenses uh, that, you know, involves uh, white judges. Um, uh, there's, you know, you have a separate uh, jury, which would mainly be comprised of people who live in the Capital Complex Improvement District who are, you know, most likely to be white. And then the case runs through, you know, the court system where at the appellate level, the vast majority of judges are, are white. So um, there is also that implication as well. And, and uh, these, these cases, would they be in state court or federal court? Which cases? Not, well, the DOJ case, for example. Oh, the DOJ case and the NAACP case have been filed in federal court in the Southern District of Mississippi. I just I wanted our listeners to understand that you know that there are different different courts of So it wouldn't be in the state court; it would be in the federal courts in, in the Southern District. And so, right, that's where those decisions will be made. Yes. Now there also is a separate lawsuit challenging a smaller uh, provision of uh, House Bill 1020, as I understand it, that has gone through the state court system. And uh, I think uh, Cliff Johnson here at uh, the University of Mississippi Law School has been involved in it. Um, and it's pending before the Mississippi Supreme Court. But it doesn't involve a challenge to the constitutionality of the entire law, just to a particular provision. Yeah, it's just interesting how uh, how legislation is challenged. I mean, you know, we, we, we elect legislators who pass laws, 
but there's a check and balance that goes on and sometimes those laws are improper and that's why we need we need courts and we need independent judiciary to, to make decisions about about these cases so it'll be interesting to follow that maybe we have you back on the show as a follow-up when those cases uh, are decided that'd be great well let's talk a little bit about special districts in general i mean uh, we're, we're talking about urban governance and um this is uh, uh house bill 1020 creates a special district mm -hmm, it does That's, but what usually are special districts used for in, in a more uh you know less controversial way well, um, historically, special districts have been used to manage various kinds of administrative tasks that um, uh, cities, counties, and states provide to citizens. So they are usually used to manage uh, irrig irrigation, uh, water uh, services, or electric utility services. Uh, in, in some places, like in Florida, you have soil conservation districts. Um, so they deal with kind of the, you know, more mundane acts of government that we often take for granted, but um, they are really an important part of how the public gets involved in decision making. In some states, the membership of these special districts is elected, uh, but it's oftentimes appointed by, um, by um, the local or a state executive like the governor. Um, special districts also have been created for various uh, communities or neighborhoods. Uh, so, you know, uh, several states uh, have uh, laws that allow for um, homeowners associations that, um, you know, operate in certain neighborhoods where all of the residents in this neighborhood are part of this association to create their own special district that has its own funding and, and, and has either uh, full or partial responsibility for maintaining its roads, lights, and all the public services associated with like moving through this neighborhood. And um, those individuals, you know, control the appointment of the members who serve on the board of that special district. Uh, special districts have recently, however, started to increase in size. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hey, at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So, I mentioned that app. Anytime you want to talk to us, you can just use the MPB Public Media app. When you open the app, you select Think Radio, because you can also do uh, music radio or MPB television. And then you go to the menu and touch Talk to Us. Uh, you'll get a selection of MPB programs and services that you can connect with. You could leave a voice note or send us an email. We would love to hear what you're interested in for a show topic. We're talking with Professor Jade Craig from the University of Mississippi School of Law about of urban governance, and we've been talking about what a special district is. My a special district that I, I uh, am always anxious whenever there's news is the Pearl River Valley Water District because... I live in Northeast Jackson and I get flooding, so I'm always interested to hear what the Pearl River Authority, what they're going to keep the water level of. But that's just one type of special district that we've been talking about. 
Yes, and, and when we're talking about the special district created by uh, House Bill 1020, you mentioned uh, it had an impact on one person, one vote. Could you, could you explain that a little bit more? How did, how did, how is that challenge? What's that challenge about? Well, the, um, the challenge really revolves around this move from an elected uh, system of government to one that's appointed. Um, uh, the elected, uh, you know, the state elects the, um, uh, you know, almost all of its judges that across the different levels of the judiciary, except for the traffic court judges at the lower court or uh, which are appointed by uh, local city councils. Uh, we also elect our prosecutors. Uh, and uh, the in the capital complex improvement district, uh, residents, you know, have, of course, um, lost the right to uh, vote for their uh, judges because the judges are appointed by um, the uh, state uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, they've lost the right to elect their prosecutors because the prosecutors are appointed by the attorney general. At the same time, the residents of the city who live outside of this capital complex improvement district but work in or travel in this district are also not being uh, a subject to uh, a judiciary that is elected by uh, their local city or county like people across the rest of the state are. And so the uh, the loss of this right to vote or representation implicates one person, one vote. Um, and the, um, the, the, the challenges around you know, how do you uh, recapture that uh, that right or, you know, what's kind of that issue at the courts? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. It is, you know, if every if, if all the other judges are elected, it is unusual, certainly, that in this special district, that's the one area that they're not elected. Um, what about, you know, we talked about annexation before. Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered, um, I mean, I think about Atlanta that has got, when I grew up, it was nine counties that Atlanta Dealt with, and when I practiced law there, I, I remember you had to file a suit um, if your if your client was in uh, DeKalb County. You had to go to Decatur. You couldn't go. You know, you wouldn't file the suit in Atlanta. You had to go to the city, city uh, the county seat. Um, you know how how do if, if Atlanta wanted to annex all those counties, how difficult would that would that be? Well, that's really sort of a matter set out by the state constitution and by state law. In some states, the city doesn't have the authority to uh, annex uh, county government uh, and the county government, the county and city governments are required to remain separate and are, you know, can't be consolidated because the, the authority to consolidate a city and a county is provided by law. So Atlanta can, you know, or could perhaps uh, annex uh, a, a city next door with that city or the state legislature's approval, but not necessarily an entire county uh, uh, next door or Fulton County in which Atlanta sits. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned um, a lot of times it is a white majority city will annex another white majority territory near it. Could Jackson, in order to kind of increase its size and its its revenue, its tax revenue, which some cities do, start to annex some of the surrounding areas? I think under Mississippi law, the authority to annex another uh, incorporated municipality is limited because uh, the powers that come along with that incorporation. Uh, the incorporation provides that city with a charter, uh, that gives it the authority to establish its own government, create its own laws, 
uh, in certain areas and to resist an annexation or an effort to be annexed by another neighboring jurisdiction. So, you know, one of the um, one of the things that started to happen in the latter part of the 20th century uh, was that, you know, uh, individuals who moved out to unincorporated areas within a county uh, when they left uh, a city would, you know, immediately uh, you know, organize to incorporate uh, a, a town in that formerly unincorporated area so that they could prevent the annexation by uh, the uh, by the neighboring city, especially if that city started to become majority black uh, and they wanted a, a majority white town. Uh, and the incorporation allows for them to control their own set of resources, uh, including tax revenue, and not share that with the uh, county government uh, in which they, you know, they used to live as an unincorporated area or with a neighboring city. So it becomes a it becomes a, a method of opportunity hoarding and of resources hoarding. The schools in this jurisdiction are better than the schools in neighboring jurisdictions because many of the wealthy people move there. Um, they you know either have organized to incorporate or they now become local taxpayers and they maintain their own set of schools so they can give all of their children the advantages that other people in different jurisdictions nearby don't have. Well, and I think it's it's interesting that you know a lot of those people still commute to the to the city where they where they work and they wait make their income, but they're not contributing any any taxes in terms of property taxes and like that as they move out into other areas. I know New York is dealing with an issue like that and considering taxing people coming in from New Jersey to work in New York. Yes, exactly. So uh, there are various strategies that um, uh, that states and local governments have. Uh, adopted to try to address this problem. Uh, one of them uh, is described as kind of a regionalism movement where uh, states are providing local governments with the authority to consolidate uh, their um, uh, consolidate within their boundaries. Uh, Liz uh, had mentioned earlier uh, about uh, Kentucky and um, uh, Lexington, the, uh, the city of Lexington, which is home to the University of Kentucky and its neighboring county becoming one unitary government. Louisville uh, famously uh, adopted a similar uh, process where, you know, whereby Louisville and Jefferson County have their own metropolitan government. And this has become a model for kind of the sharing of resources uh, between, you know, a, usually a majority black uh, city and a majority white neighboring county. Uh, and they can all move forward and become more prosperous uh, through the sharing of resources. It can facilitate the integration of schools, for example, as one you know, entire unitary government uh, uh, brings children into the same school systems. Uh, because what we have today is, you know, uh, in many cases, majority black or white towns have their own separate school districts and the schools can only be uh, integrated with the residents within that jurisdiction. Uh, as part of a Supreme Court decision, that followed about 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education called Milliken versus Bradley, where um, the uh, uh, the city of Detroit wanted to um, develop an integration plan that included all of the neighboring counties or several neighboring jurisdictions. And the Supreme Court said that that remedy went too far and the remedy could only include that unit of local government uh, that ran the school system. So regionalism is a way that we can increase the sharing of resources and increase racial integration and diversity uh, across communities. 
Um, there also are you know, various mechanisms to try to obtain tax revenue from people who work within a certain jurisdiction, whether that be through toll roads, as people you know, that charge people who use certain roads coming from suburbs into cities. Um, in some states, uh, local governments are able to provide, uh, create uh, an income tax that taxes individuals who are employed in a certain city uh, but live in another area and they have to pay, you know, local government taxes to the city where they're employed. Uh, but, um, you know, generally it is very hard to capture the resources of people who live in a separate jurisdiction from where they work. Um, and it has uh, really drained uh, larger cities that provide uh, jobs or become employment centers of resources that ultimately go to their neighboring jurisdictions. I am so excited about this show because, gosh, I just wish everybody could live together in harmony and and work towards uh, goodness and prosperity for everyone. And when we think about urban governance, I don't want it to be uh, me and them and you against us. And uh, can't we all just live together? <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Jade Craig, for, for being on our show, and welcome to, to Ole Miss. Welcome to MPB, and I hope that we can have you back sometime. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Well, we appreciate you very much. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. We thank our podcast producer, Abram Nanny, for partnering with us. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We do hope that you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.